Mintonville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that says, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is How to Hit a Home Run. Hey, Chad. How you doing, Mike? I'm ready to watch some baseball, Chad. It's that time of year. The weather is finally turning. Yep. It's finally starting to warm up. It's finally getting to a point where I can imagine just sitting around, hot dog in one hand, ice cold beer in another hand, uh-huh. and uh, some peanuts sort of sitting in my lap, mm-hmm. just waiting for the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> Are you doing this at home or are you at the uh, ballpark in this daydream? I'm at the ballpark. You're at the ballpark. Okay. I actually have plans. I think I might go see the Nationals this summer. Oh, fun. Yeah. For me, baseball is one of those events that is infinitely more enjoyable live at the stadium than as a television exercise. Absolutely. I'm totally on board with that as well. Yeah. Football, I can watch at home. That's a great Sunday afternoon for me. Uh I enjoy baseball like around playoff time, especially if there's a team I like that's Mm -hmm. in it, because then I'm a little bit more willing to like carve out the time to sort of get into the nuances of what's happening between the teams and all the, the stuff that's going on between the plays. I'm just at a point in my life when I don't have the time to dedicate to to it other than that mm. at least in a televised way yeah but yeah live in the stadium great fun anyway the the reason we're talking about baseball today i got an email from a dedicated listener debbie she writes and i wondered if it would be possible for you to give a short lesson about the physics of baseball uh. and so i was like yeah i can probably do that uh-huh. And so I started thinking about it and I realized that a few years ago, I listened to a talk by, and I think he's retired now, a guy named Alan Nathan, who is sort of the expert of the physics of baseball. Uh-huh. And in his talk, he actually showed a clip of this one play that I think we're going to put this up on our link on Facebook, a link to a YouTube video of a uh, Cincinnati Reds player from 2012. His name was Todd Frazier and he hit a unique home run. Okay. And I, I would encourage people to go and look at it, but in the absence of that, so so I just sent it to you, Chad. Can you describe what, what's going on there? Well, it shows that sort of characteristic view that you often get on TV of a baseball game where you're sort of back behind the pitcher over the pitcher's shoulder and you're watching the pitcher throw the pitches to home plate and the batter swings at the pitch and connects with the ball. But then at the same time, if you're paying attention, you notice that the bat, it, it looks like it has slipped out of his hands. Mm-hmm. And it sort of tumbles into the field to play. And meanwhile, the ball goes over the fence. But then when they go back and replay it, what you realize is that he kind of let go of the bat an instant before the bat makes contact with the ball. So he, it's almost like he essentially threw the bat at the ball. Yeah. And somehow the ball still went out of the field to play. So, yeah, I don't yeah. think he did that on purpose. Yeah. I mean, if if you watch it really slowed down, you can see like his his right hand is completely off the bat at the time he made contact Uh and it's one could debate about his left hand maybe he's just still barely touching the bat at that time but it's definitely on its way out like he is letting go of the bat when he made contact with the ball right and what's great about this clip is that for a physicist this just sends me down so many rabbit holes (laughs) and and it it was kind of a fun thing to to chase these little holes around and see where they popped out so Uh so i thought this would be a perfect opportunity for our crisscrossing science fans okay so the, the reason that this made me spiral so much is that there's this concept of conservation of momentum that physicists use quite a bit. Okay. You know, heard like you've heard of it? Heard of it. Basically, the equation, I know this is terrible podcasting, but I'm going to rattle off an equation real quick. Okay, wait, let me get my pen. <laughs> okay, go. So M1V1 plus M2V2 
is equal to M1, I'm going to say U1 plus M2, U2, where V and U are sort of the velocities of things. V would be like before they run into each other and then U would be the velocities after. And so basically okay. when two things collide, then they transfer this momentum. So the, the amount of momentum that you transfer depends on how fast the two things are going and what the masses are. So when I'm saying M1 and M2 and all that, I'm talking about the masses of the two objects Okay. and the velocities of them beforehand. Well, okay, hold on. So, so is momentum then the product of mass times velocity? Yes. All right. And so we've got this equation with an equal sign in the middle. And on one side, we have two momentums or the momentums of two different things. Yeah. And you add them together on one side of the equation. And then on the other side of the equation, it's the same, even though some of the, the velocities might now differ between the two objects. Yeah. Yeah. That they'll exchange some of the velocities between the two of them. And, and, and I mean, this is useful all the time. I've used it. I've actually been hired for a couple of consulting things for like court cases and so forth. You know, like if you have an insurance case where you've got two cars collide, you can use conservation of momentum and say like, okay, well, you know, this car was parked and the second one hit it and you can uh, estimate like how fast that second car had to have been going to make the reaction afterwards. Okay. Right. Like, so basically if the second car moved up a certain amount and you can see the skidding of the tires and so forth, and you can say, okay, it traveled that far and you can kind of work backwards and figure out that the first car must've been going this fast. And so they were clearly speeding. And so you can do things like that. Remember learning about conservation of momentum in a high school physics class. And I still remember my physics teacher's favorite example was if you had like a pistol and you were an astronaut in space and you became untethered from the space shuttle or something, yep. you could sort of fire, you know, put your back towards the space shuttle and hold the pistol so that you're pointing directly away from the space shuttle. And if you fired, then the bullet would have its momentum going in the opposite direction and it would push you back towards the space shuttle. Yep. And even though you're much more massive, it'd give you a little momentum though. Yeah. Or you could throw a screwdriver and, and do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he said. He was like, you, if it's like a, a six shooter or something, you fire all six bullets. And then the last thing you should do is <laughs> chuck the gun. <laughs> yeah. But then you have to be careful about the reentry of all these bullets and sure. The gun. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, baseball. Yeah. So so let's use conservation of momentum with like football, let's say. Okay. So if you've got like, let's say two players decide to collide in midair and trying to push the other one. If you've got, say, an offensive lineman and uh, the kicker. For, <laughs> uh -huh. Generally, the kicker is going to be smaller, less massive than the offensive lineman. Uh -huh. And so, you know, if they're both coming at each other with the same velocity to start out with uh -huh. upon collision, they're going to transfer their momentum. And most likely the kickers going to get pushed backwards because there's more mass on the one side than the other one. Well, not to mention the kickers got to be thinking, dude, we're on the same team. <laughs> but so the reason this really throws me is that when I see somebody batting in baseball, my assumption is that, okay, well, they're holding the stick. Mm -hmm. So the momentum then I think should be my mass plus the bat, all that mass is then trying to transfer some speed to this ball that's coming at me. Okay. okay, so is it is the idea that, I mean, I remember learning how to bat. I was told how important it was to like have a good stance and good contact with the ground, turn your hips and to yeah. have your cleats dug in and, you know, get a good whack at the ball and hit the ball all the way from your feet all the way up through your body and get yeah. a good swing and crack at the ball. Yeah, and so that makes you think, okay, well, your whole body must be involved in this 
interaction here uh-huh. so that you would have a big M on your side of the ledger. Sure. Right. Otherwise, you would think like if I just had a little bat there, then the bat and the ball have about the same mass. So it mm. seems like there's a lot of work you'd have to do to maybe go make the bat swing even faster to make this all work out. Right. Yeah. And not to mention that, I mean, you've probably like played some baseball where, you know, you get like a really good solid hit at the ball and you can mm-hmm. just feel the transference down the bat, right? You yeah. like feel it in your hands and up your forearms and stuff. Well, and- oh, well, no, if you feel that, let's co- we'll come back to that at the end of the episode. Okay. All right. We will okay. come back to that. That's an important okay. point. The the stinger. Okay. But so that led me down this whole rabbit hole of like, okay, so that means he had to have like really swung really hard in order to get the bat to go fast enough to transfer enough momentum to the ball going the other way. Okay. It turns out people have done research on this. And it turns out that the signal of the ball being in contact with the bat lasts generally about one millisecond. Okay. And actually, you can go online, you can find videos of people shooting a baseball at like a bat, and you can see the ball itself would deform, it'll kind of squish up, and then it'll kind of bounce back to a sphere. All that takes place in less than one millisecond. And so that's what gives the ball its like elastic rebound? Is that the idea? That's some part of it, but... Okay. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have gone down that part of it. But you can watch these videos and you can see... That it's squishing, then it bounces back. And the fact yeah. that it, it returns to its normal shape means that it's more or less elastic. Like if it permanently just, then it's losing a lot of energy. But the fact that it kind of crushes down and then pops back means that you're not losing energy in that interaction. Okay. But the fact that it only takes about one millisecond, but they've also tested how fast a signal can go from the end of the bat to where your hands are. And that takes about four milliseconds. So if you really think about this, this blew my mind, to be totally honest with you. If you really think about this, the bat makes contact with the ball and the ball is gone. You know, there are three milliseconds before your hands even know, you know, the rest of the bat doesn't even know that it, that the ball has been there yet until it's already gone. Hmm. And so when you say the the signal traveling down the, the bat, are you basically talking about essentially a sound wave traveling through solid? Yeah. Like a, com- a little compression wave, basically. The bat itself will kind of wobble a little bit. Uh huh. But it takes the bat, it takes about four milliseconds for that wobble to actually reach it to your hands. Huh. So by the time you actually know that you made contact with the ball, it's already sailing. Okay. And so what that means then is that everybody, anybody who's hitting a baseball, the momentum transfer is entirely from just the bat. Actually, just the part of the bat that started vibrating before it took off. Why, why does it mean that specifically? So in order for the rest of the body to be involved in hitting and transferring the momentum, basically this signal, this wobble has to come down to your hands and your body, and then your body has to sort of bounce it back to the tip of the bat to make the bat actually straighten up again. Oh, I see. I see. So So for the batter to actually be involved in this instant of the interaction, the ball would have to be in contact with the bat while this wave comes down to the hands bounces back and comes back up to where the ball is. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. And so it turns out that effectively, at the moment where you're actually making contact with the ball, the batter is not involved in that at all. Got it. Huh. And so that that means we have to actually change our mindset with the momentum transfer. That means that effectively, the only mass involved in here is however much mass is at the end of the bat. So like the the end of a bat is what? Maybe 18 to 24 inches? So it's about 35 inches or so. Okay. But the fat part is like only about 20 inches. Okay. And so it's just that fat part then. So it's just the fat part that is really interacting with the ball. Okay. And so if I wanted to model this using conservation of momentum, I'm using only the fat part of the bat. Huh. You know, so not the, even the whole bat. Not even the whole bat. None of that is actually 
It's basically at the moment where you're making the impact, how much of that is going to interact with the ball before the ball leaves again. I know, I, yeah, I never thought about that before because you definitely feel the crack of the ball in your yep. hands, but by the time you feel that it's long gone. It is long gone. Yeah. So you're not actually feeling the ball touching the bat. You're feeling the after effect of the ball touching the bat. Yeah. And so what this actually says is that if you don't want to feel the sting of the bat, you should throw the bat every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so that fixes all that for you. So. Yeah. Right. But it does also raise the question of, so how can we be a better batter then? Uh -huh. What kind of, what would be the ideal bat to use? And so that means we've got two things that we can control. We've got the mass of the bat, especially okay. at the fat end. Uh -huh. And actually, I don't know if you've, well, you probably haven't. I grew up in Kentucky, and so I've been to the Louisville Slugger. They have a museum, and that's also where they make bats, the Louisville Sluggers. And and it's kind of cool to go there. I would recommend anybody who wants to go there, next door you get some bourbon, and then you go over and you you take a tour of the facilities. And they have like these computerized lathes, and they have they decide what type of wood, and they decide, you know, so major league players go there, and they, they're like, no, no, no. I want this to be just a little bit different and so forth. And they've got like hundreds of different designs that every player gets to pick what they want exactly. Hmm. But basically what they're controlling then is how much mass is there in the bat and how is it distributed? And then what the batter actually controls is how fast can they swing Okay, when they make contact. Yeah. And aside from the choice of bat they're making for how much mass they have in that part of the bat, then it becomes how fast they can swing it. And so, I mean, you want the fat part to be as massive as possible, but then the rest of it to be as light as possible so that you can swing the thing, right? Well, it turns out that this all leads up to something called the moment of inertia, which is really saying momentum again. It's just since the mass is distributed across the bat, you have to do more calculating. But And it turns out moment of inertia depends on the distance squared. So if you have to have the fat part out there, that's the most important part anyway. But it, it's really a matter of, as you say, if we have a fatter bat or if we have a, a heavier bat, more mass at the end, you would think that it would be easier to hit a home run from that. Mm -hmm. But there's, it turns out there's a trade-off there. Okay. Because the speed of your swing actually matters. I mean, it matters just as much. It's mass times the velocity. And so there's a trade-off there because if you have a heavier bat, you're not going to be able to get your swing going as fast. And so it turns out that there's a sort of a preference going on with that. So do players that are like big guys that are known for hitting lots of home runs, all else being equal, are they able to swing a massive bat faster than everybody else? I mean, is that basically what they're able to do? Do they use more massive bats or are they swinging a regular bat faster? They are swinging a regular bat, but they also, I've seen other research where the best hitters are able to track the ball closer to where they actually make contact. So for everybody, like if you have a camera angle showing them watching the pitch coming in at some point, you're just, you're hoping that you're going to just follow through the swing and, but like professional players and specifically ones who have a higher batting average, the closer to actually making contact that they can get the better, the, the better they are. So it's actually statistically significant and very obvious as well that mm -hmm. like, you know, high school players will lose track of it several inches in front of them, that it just gets so blurry that they're not able to watch it anymore. They can't keep looking at it well enough to watch it actually make contact with the bat. But then, you know, minor league players are able to watch it come in a little bit closer to the bat before they make contact. For that, it really is a matter of making good contact and hitting it where you want to hit it. Okay. So it's an eye-hand coordination issue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And interestingly, you could do a calculation with the conservation of momentum and you could find like, okay, what would be the best trade-off here, right? Because given the same 
muscles and so forth, how fast could you swing it versus how heavy it is. And it turns out that you could calculate what would be the ideal weight for a bat. It turns out that most major league players choose to go on the lighter side so that they can swing faster. And mm-hmm. presumably that also lets them kind of adjust as they see the pitch coming in, they can sort of adjust and swing a little bit lower or a little bit higher and fix any problems so that they can be more consistent. Mm-hmm. So what what about this? In the major leagues, they use exclusively wooden bats. Yep. But then in high school and little league, and I think into college, they use aluminum bats. Or they can at least, yeah. Or, or they can, right. They're not, but aluminum bats are not allowed in, in the majors. Right. And so aside from the obvious difference in materials, what difference does that make in the transference of energy to the ball, the metal versus the wood? Well, so aluminum bats are lighter than, uh-huh. than wood bats. They're more forgiving in the sense that they won't break if you hit them wrong. Okay. But other than that, I mean, my understanding is that it's not much of a difference. Hmm. That college, they care about this a lot. They don't want to give everybody a, an unfair advantage or anything. So they, but it makes the bats lighter. So a lot of players will choose to do that just so that they have the adjustment period that they can do more easily with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there have been a few controversies through time where batters have apparently tried to cheat by drilling a hole down the middle of their bat and uh, yeah. packing it with, what do they put in there? Like just like wine bottle corks or something, <laughs> or, or is it just some, some like long shaft of cork material? Sometimes it's rubber. I, I remember bits oh, of rubber. rubber? That... Okay. So what are they and trying cork. to cut I mean, weight? it's called corking. They, I'm sorry. Are they, are they trying to cut weight? Are they trying to make the bat somehow more resilient or reflective, bouncy? It seems to be all about the weight. The that weight. makes it a lighter bat. Yeah. Which is funny because that takes you farther away from being able to transfer momentum effectively. And right. that's that's what I was thinking when I was when I was thinking about that. Like you're telling me that the mass is important. And it seems like if you're replacing a bunch of the wood mm-hmm. with something lighter weight, you would be cutting down on the M part of that equation. Yeah. But you're saying that the trade-off in increasing the V they feel is more than enough to make up for that. And studies have been done on this. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So experimentally in the field, people have found that when they've known that somebody is cheating and they can look at their records, it turns out it does not help them with home runs, <laughs> but it does get them on base more often. And I, and I guess, does that have something to do with a uh, lighter bat they have more control over? over? Exactly. So they can fine tune what their swing is at the last second and so forth, but it, it's not experimentally helping them get more home runs or anything like that. Hmm. So even though Sammy Sosa, for instance, is one famous example of corking his bat, it did not help him in the home run part. Okay. So, I mean, getting on base more frequently though is a sufficient unfair advantage to disallow it. So yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So ideally you would have maybe a slightly heavier bat. If your goal was home runs, possibly a little bit heavier, but uh, most people tend to be a a little bit on the lighter side than what they could be for that. Mm -hmm. Now it's also interesting to think about what happens after you make the hit, Uh because as we said before the hit, it's all about the swing and, and how fast you can get things going. And then after what happens, well, I, we talked a little bit about how the, the ball itself, when it makes contact with the bat, it'll deform and then bounce back. So the bat itself also does that as well. And you can find these slow motion videos where it actually starts vibrating, kind of like if you plucked a guitar string. Hmm. And so we've had a couple of episodes recently about plucking musical instruments and so forth. And so I was like, oh, well, we got to talk about that then. Mm -hmm. So if you remember when we were talking about 
you know, musical instruments such as playing a mandolin. Uh-huh. You put your finger on there and, and you choose the length of the string and you pluck the notes. And it turns out you're not just playing the fundamental, the note that you know you're playing. You're also playing all these harmonics simultaneously with that. So when you're plucking it, you, you make all these different notes that come out of that. But so a higher harmonic means that, for instance, if you pluck it, the fundamental note on a guitar string would be the entire string vibrating across the entire length so that it naturally is not moving at the two ends, but it, it is going sort of like a, a jump rope, a hopscotch type thing mm-hmm. is what you would imagine. But it's possible to also send other notes other frequencies through that same string, Mm -hmm. such as one that has double the frequency. And so double the frequency would be pinched off on one side, it would go up and down for ways, and then right in the middle, it would not move at all. And then it would go up and down again. And then at the very end, it would stop moving as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's called the second harmonic is where the wave is basically traveling up and down in the middle, it, it doesn't ever move. And then it continues on to the other side. I don't know if you can visualize this. Yeah, well, I'm thinking you you used the analogy of like a, a jump rope or something where the first one is like the jump rope going in just a single big loop. Yeah. And the second one would be like if you were whipping your hand around faster and instead of just one big loop, now you have two humps with yeah. a stationary point in the middle. Yeah, and the stationary point is what's called the node. Okay. And so it turns out that's not moving at all. And actually, during our episode about the mandolin, our guest actually did what's called playing the harmonic, where you lightly put your finger at one of the natural nodes. And so as this wave is going back and forth, it will dampen out anything that that is trying to make a movement. But any of these notes that naturally aren't moving there anyway, are perfectly happy to just keep going back and forth. Okay. And so what happens is you can play a note open, and then you just lightly put your finger on here and play it again. And it sounds kind of weird and ghostly because you're kind of sucking out all the energy from the fundamental and, and some of these other harmonics and leaving behind the ones that are not being affected by your finger. Okay, so now let's transfer that onto a bat, a baseball bat. Yeah, so a baseball bat is a different situation now. So like with a guitar string, you're fixed on both ends. Uh-huh. But a baseball bat, you're holding it on one end and the other end is free to oscillate. Okay. So the the math of it is a little bit more complicated. There's a little bit more stuff going on. But it turns out there are there are two frequencies that actually matter here. Well, there's the fundamental that is the entire stick going back and forth. But then you can also have the second harmonic would be where it's got a bend in the middle, but there is a node, which is about 17 centimeters from the end of the bat. So is that that sounds like roughly halfway or is it like halfway? That's roughly like three quarters of the way down the bat, you know, and, and it gets more complicated here because the bat it's different to have like a, a solid rigid stick that's the same diameter all the way down. And for a bat, then as we've talked about, it gets fatter as you get out. So Uh different things are going on. But it turns out that the motion here does have, there are actually two relevant nodes. So the the fundamental makes the entire stick go back and forth. The second harmonic will have sort of a bend in the middle and then, but there's still, there's a node towards the end. And then the next harmonic also has like two bends in the middle and, but it still has a spot, a node near the end as well, which is not exactly where the first node was, but pretty close. They actually are very close to overlapping. Hmm. So here's what's happening here. If you happen to make contact exactly at one of the nodes, then that frequency will not be excited at all because it's not going to move that way anyway. So if you hit it right there, that's what's called the sweet spot. And, okay. and so if you can hit it at the sweet spot, then you will not feel any vibrations coming up your arm. 
Due uh, to that, due to that frequency. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then like, I remember from when I used to play ball when I was in middle school and, and high school, occasionally you'd, you'd hit it on that sweet spot and it, you would hear the crack and you'd feel just like a little light puff, yep. just a gentle little thing. And then the ball would go sailing. But then other times if you hit it off the end of the bat, it really hurt. Yep. Or Your like hands would go numb. Close, yep. too close on the handle and it hurts. Yep. And so you, what you're saying is that you're making contact rather than at a node at a location on this bat, where if we were to transfer this to sort of like a, a rope kind of thing, where it would be at kind of like the height of one of those waves, I guess. Well, no, no. If if you make contact where the node would be, uh -huh. then it will not excite that frequency. So okay. like a demo of this would be with if we had a guitar or a mandolin or something like that. See, okay. And what we did was we plucked it and our finger was at the node. But if instead, if I had a hammer or something to, to try to play, but if I were to strike it right at the node, it would sound very different than if I struck it someplace else. Because if I strike it right at the node, then none of those frequencies would be excited. But if I strike it anywhere else, then these other frequencies would also be excited. So okay. for instance, like if for a guitar string, like it's all the different nodes are equally spaced across. So if I were to like be one third of the way across and I struck it with a hammer, none of the frequencies that have a node right there would be excited at all. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the opposite of what we did with playing the harmonic where you're plucking it elsewhere and your finger is killing everything else off. In this case, if I were to hit it with a hammer, then the only thing that would not be sounding would be the ones that would have a node there already. I see. And this comes up in music all the time. Of When you're taught how to play, you're taught to pluck at certain places along the, the string there because you will get slightly different sounds. Or if you're playing the drums, you're taught not to actually hit right in the middle of the drum head because that's sort of a dead sound because a lot of the drum frequencies that come off of that, they have a node right there in the middle. And so it's just kind of a thud sound. Whereas if you're... Uh -huh. A little bit closer to the edge, you'll you'll get more interesting sounds out of it. Uh huh. And so the same thing happens with the bat. Is that the bat is this rigid stick, and it has a node, and it, and it has these two nodes actually. And so if you hit sort of like in between those two nodes, then that's the sweet spot. Uh huh. And you will not excite very much of these oscillations. And you know some people will say that they didn't even feel that they made contact. They just saw it sailing off. Uh huh. But if you hit it too far away, if you hit it too close to the end or if you hit it too tight to you that's when you break a bat for instance because the oscillations are just so big that it just cracks the whole thing mm -hmm. so this conversation about the importance of the shape of the bat and like the identification of where the sweet spot is and the specifics about the size and shape and mass are presumably all things that have evolved about bats through time over the last hundred and some odd years that people have been playing baseball with with wooden bats. And my mm -hmm. guess is that it's been like a century and a half of sort of trial and error. Right. And so it's interesting that that century and a half of trial and error has sort of converged towards this optimal tool for the job. Mm -hmm. And so now with scientific tools, you can sort of interrogate what it is about that size and shape and mass that makes it so effective. And if you were to design it from first principles, it might actually look pretty much like what bats are currently. Yeah. And so I don't know, I find that to be sort of an, an interesting analogy to an evolutionary process. Yeah, I've thought about that, like with musical instruments as well, that uh -huh. people have made them for centuries. And just through trial and error, they're like, well, this one sounds better. I like this design. What did I do differently? Oh, I just, that sounds better. Okay, I'm going to keep it with that. And 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of interesting to think through all that. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's not necessarily the maximum, like the absolute apex peak design. It's just each little step is locally, like, oh, I can improve it locally with this one little tweak. Right. But and that now with computers, you can really interrogate and try to figure out like, okay, is this really the best? Mm-hmm. Maybe this is too mathematical, but like you can have a local peak over here, but then the absolute peak could be in some other phase space. Hey man, you're describing an adaptive landscape. <laughs> that's, that's what we call that in biology, where there's a local peak, uh, even though there might somewhere else in the in space be the best possible. But as you say, it's you don't have to be the best possible. You just have to be better than everybody else around you. Yeah, it's like running from a bear. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the other. Yeah. The other people. <laughs> and if you have a bat, maybe you can kneecap them. Oh, the other people or the bear? it's up to you (laughs) all right well thanks that was cool mike yeah this episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of winfield university at least chad's there rodeo ortega wrote our theme music if you like this episode or others like it you should subscribe to the podcast that way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available while there leave a comment and a rating and that'll help other people find our podcast if you have ideas that you would like us to address such as the physics of other sports email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com all one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>